Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jen Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing The Lost Daughter and Landscapers, a film and a limited series that both seek to explore the complexities of codependency, whether it's motherhood or marriage. Yeah. Lovely. And they also both happen to star the wonderful Queen of England. Yes, Queen of England, Olivia Coleman herself. I'm excited for this week's episode. Me too. <laughs> what have you been up to this week, love? Not much. I got a uh I got a haircut and I noticed that you mm. did too. When did you get yours cut? Uh just on Thursday. So it was nothing major, just like a a little trim. Yeah. I just don't get haircuts because I'm kind of low maintenance bitch. But uh, yeah, it was nice. <laughs> it felt really nice to be sitting in the chair as someone who's like very skilled and detail oriented yeah. and like really considerate. Japanese yeah. salons, man, like those are really where it's they're at. different, bro. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. very, very good. Are you a talker when you're in the chair? No. Or are you a quiet. Not at all. I'm a I'm yeah. quiet. This time I even like let my eyes close for a little bit and it's like, this is mm. really nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What about you? What was your experience and what is your experience um, in general? Yeah, no, I'm I wouldn't call myself a low maintenance bitch. <laughs> I think I am all things considered because I only get a haircut like once every six months or once every year, even. Yeah, you like it long. I do like my hair long, but this guy that I had seen one time before, Mm -hmm. like two summers ago, he moved to Charlotte, but he still comes down to New York to get clients out here. Yeah, and the salon's really nice. It's really expensive for me Mm -hmm. anyway, Um, but it's worth it because it's so tough with haircuts because like they all look great once you leave the chair. Uh, But for someone that like leaves it long and doesn't get their hair cut often, the difference between a good and a great haircut for me is, is it still going to look good in six months time? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And this guy has proven himself to be passing that test. So it was great. Like, I feel great. My hair is definitely the shortest it's ever been in 10 years. But it's at like the middle of my boob, which is still very long for most people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like... I feel a little bit lost, but it's, I think it suits me. So yeah. here we are. I look good in, in your photo. Um, Thanks, love. And yeah. you know, well, we'll see. I'm washing <laughs> it for the first time at home, and you know that's the real test, right? Yeah. It's not after. It's, it's not the blowout. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The worst case, you know, it grow back out again. <laughs> Bless us for, for getting our getting our hair together. So anyway, in the realm of. TV and film. What did you watch this week, Palin? So I rewatched The Lost Daughter, which just came out on Netflix on the 31st of December. So like it was a l- last Netflix movie of last year. Mm-hmm. But this is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. And it's based on the Elena Ferrante novel of the same name. It stars Olivia Colman as Leda, Dakota Johnson as Mina, Jesse Buckley as a younger Leda. There's a bunch of other people in this cast that are amazing, but that's your main three. three? Yeah, three. Mm-hmm. I actually first saw this film. I checked my emails for the screening date. Mm-hmm. September 30th of last year. Long time I saw this ago. Film. Long time ago. And guess what? I've been thinking about it ever since. So I'm so <laughs> excited to finally talk about yeah. it. You had it in your... Um, you said it was... One of your favorites, or maybe your the favorite uh, film, it's, yeah, yeah, in our uh, end of year special. Yeah, I rank this as number one of the year mm. for, for for top top five films of the year. Yeah, this this was my number one. The supporting cast includes Dagmara Dominic, um, Ed Harris, Paul Meskel, 
And then Maggie's own husband, Peter Sarsgaard, is also in this. Um, along with like two very, well, three very cute toddler daughters, mm-hmm. um, who I don't know the names of. I'm sorry. You saw this this week or last week? Yeah, I watched it, uh, during break, I guess, mm. uh, the t- period, uh, leading up to or around New Year. And yeah. I was really excited because I know how much you, you know, were gushing over it. I know how much other critics have been loving this. I was just. Did I disappoint you? No, I was, I was wanting something good on Netflix because it's, it feels like there's been a bit of a dry spell in terms of like their, yeah. their, I don't know, like good films. Well, yeah. Um, and here we there's are. There's a reason why we call it like mid flicks, you know, because half the time <laughs> everything is like really mid. But yeah, this, this was great. Yeah, yeah. really fantastic. The TLDR of what this is about, and without giving too much away, when Olivia Coleman's leader, her solo vacation in Greece is interrupted by a loud Greek-American family, she fixates on Nina and her toddler daughter, which kind of stirs up memories of Lida's own early motherhood. That's like me not giving too much away, because a lot happens in this film in, in a very contained space. And just a background, this is a pandemic movie, so this was made in a bubble, essentially, on this Greek island. I think the reason why it was my number one movie of last year, and I, and I would go so far as saying it's one of my favorite movies of all time, it lodged itself into my existence, I think, because of the themes that it covers, which are essentially womanhood and motherhood, which I really wanted to talk to you about, Jenny, because I, I do think that like the reasons why you might like this film, a part of it, I would say like 25% of it, has a lot to do with you know the age that you might be at, and how you perceive motherhood and and what makes you think about it so like for you what is it that you feel about motherhood whether it's for yourself or like whether whether it's like you as a daughter or you as a child of it well i relate to motherhood i think primarily still as a as a daughter like it's no secret i think to anyone who listens to this pod or who like reads you know any of my work or any of our you know work also like uh, we are big, like, mother's girls in a way. Yeah. That's really, like, for me personally, like, the really tender feelings towards my mother and this, like, firm conviction that she loves and cares for me as just, like, one of the primary functions of her existence and that I yeah. love and care for her in, like, a the same way. Um, this, like, I would say, like, probably codependent, uh, reciprocal relationship. Yeah, um, totally. So that's what it brings up for me and this was really fascinating like i said and also really painful in in a lot of ways because seeing yeah. how motherhood works in this film is not entirely like what i've experienced in my life um but it's yeah it's it's really worth worth it for like the different shades and like complexities and nuances that it explores yeah um yeah i don't know motherhood is so essential and like just intrinsically important and significant in a daughter's life but also like in in culture and society and everything yeah. and i don't know there's so much baggage with motherhood too and so much pressure attached to it yeah. uh it's really kind of impossible in a lot of ways and like the pr machine around motherhood is so intense and it's so rooted in a gaze of some kind whether it's the gaze of like patriarchy and how it treats motherhood and also like from woman to woman, the pressure that we have on an, on each other in terms of what a perfect mother is. Like, mm-hmm. I think anybody that 
has ever gone down the wormhole of a mummy blog or a mummy Reddit thread, <laughs> or just anybody that follows any mummy blogger types on Instagram or anything like that, like there is this weird lens through which we see everything that feels like it's all a performance. And it's fascinating because I think mothers themselves and most parents as well just have to perform to some extent for their children because y- you kind of have to, to, yeah. to not have your kids have a rude awakening or feel weird about their position as the person that is the most important <laughs> to, yeah. to the mother but um to then do that to the external world is also fascinating and people kind of don't talk about the thornier sides of it and yeah. so much of that has to do with also how motherhood is depicted on film like I think that the most common understanding is that it's either one or one of two you know you have the self-sacrificial the all loving, all nurturing, doesn't question it, will do anything for their children depiction of motherhood on film and TV. And then you've got the the type that's monstrous in yeah, a way. Yeah. You know? It's like there's no in between. And I think what this film tries to do is showcase both of these things. Coming away from it, I don't think Lida in general is someone that is all-encompassing loving and like all monstrous but the fact that it does kind of straddle that middle ground is the most fascinating and the most artful and the most interesting part about this film yeah i mean mothers are people (laughs) like that's a dumb obvious thing to say but like all yeah they're not saints yeah they're like all people there are different sides there are different uh, facets to to their character to to their attitude to their beliefs to to how they treat uh others and their children and yeah, like, <laughs> they're real people. And what I found also really fascinating, probably the most fascinating part of this film, was just how it, ex- it explores this question of, like, is there such thing as a, a natural mother? Like, mm-hmm, you are made mm-hmm. to be a mother. Is, like, maternal feelings, maternity, is that something that is intrinsic to some people and just some people, right. others don't have it? And it's either you have it or you don't, or... yeah is a combination of other things, how much you're yeah. willing to, to try and stay and, and fight and love in different ways uh, mm-hmm. for your children. Not to get too personal about this, but I am someone that has been thinking about motherhood for myself for the last, like, I would say two years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 32 going on 33. I have been extremely on the fence about it because of the fact that I did a lot of reading and I found out about all the gory details of like what childbirth is like, what raising a child is like. I have read very many books that are both honest and not so much Mm. about motherhood. And I think my biggest frustration, I would say, from everything that I've read, from all the talk that I've had from people is there is this newfound honesty, I think, with mothers that depict themselves being mothers on social media or wherever it might be, where they're like, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I've never had to, like, I've never pushed myself this hard. It, you know, this is so frighteningly difficult. But then there's always a but. And it's uh, not, mm-hmm. it's not to say that I don't, you know, I'm putting that down. It's just that there always has to be a but. You know, it's the best thing I've ever had to do. It's the thing that has brought me the most joy. I believe that. I believe that it can be both. But I do find it very difficult in depictions of motherhood to just sit with the fact that it can be shit and just sit with it and not follow up with, but it's worth it, right? Yeah. But you you love your kids, right? That's besides the point. (laughs) Yeah, they don't have to necessarily be a 
related. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that's that's the thing is like mothers are not given the room to just whinge. Just whinge and whine and throw a strop and throw a tantrum. It's I think it's just like it just has to be accepted for women to be able to do that because <laughs> what like what is going to happen if if they don't? And I I just kind of feel like it will result in more and more internal issues. And you know we see that through Lida and we see that through her trying to work through and do things that she doesn't necessarily understand. As well as the audience, you know, we don't know why she's doing half the things that she's yeah, doing. Yeah, like why everything with the doll, where as like the audience, the viewers are yeah. like, why, like why? please do take yeah. this other course of action. Um, yeah, but she doesn't necessarily get it either. Yeah, but like, I'm sure like a bunch of therapists will just sit down and be able to diagnose. Uh, like, yeah, it's like a whole checklist. It's just unresolved po- postpartum yeah. depression that just never ended. It's just, but yeah, I mean. I think there was a part in the New York Times interview with Maggie Gyllenhaal where she said she said something extremely interesting, but this stuck with me. And she said that, you know, we find it tough to talk about the tough part of motherhood because we all have mothers and we don't want our own mothers to feel ambivalent about motherhood because then what does that mean for us yeah. as, the, as the child? And that's also a part of it. I think with depictions of the thorny or the tough sides of motherhood and the fact that you just kind of have to sit with the fact that it's tough and sometimes you just put that aside and then the joy is on the other side and one does not color the other either way. Um, it, you know, a part of that responsibility falls on us, I think, as just being able to see our mothers as a little bit more human. I wanted to ask you, actually, did you ever, have you read any Ferrante? Like, did you, have you read The Lost Daughter or anything else that she's written? I've read the Neapolitan uh, novels, mm. the, the her, her most famous uh, trilogy. So a lot of the themes, the setting, uh, the kinds of characters and the kinds of, you know, violence or gaze that are present in mm. uh, this film and presumably the, the source material. Uh, yeah. I think those are just like universal themes that Ferrante likes to focus on. But yeah, it it really did feel like a, a Ferrante-like work on the yeah. screen. I asked this because on the panel, and I think now Maggie Gyllenhaal and like some of our interviews talked about adapting this novel because she wrote uh, the script for this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Ferrante is famously like anonymous mm-hmm. and um, they communicated via email. And Ferrante only one only gave her the rights to do it if she was the one to direct it, which I think worked mm. out perfectly. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the let's talk about the movie. So there is, I would say, an inciting incident, which is the first time Lida sees Nina, and Olivia Coleman's face. Um, and it's I think it's like around the time that we start to see the first flashbacks, and um, she just starts crying, and you don't know why. You know that she's like emotionally affected by something. How did you feel about the fact that this this was shot on like a Greek island? I know that it's like it's it's what happens in the book, but like how did you feel about the location? Yeah, the kind of really beautiful everything bleached in sun, mm-hmm. uh this oceanside uh setting, also like the storminess and like the moodiness of the ocean and the weather there. I guess now that you mention that it probably probably almost is like a a kind of secondary character in a way like Mm. it's it's both a little bit like domesticated like it's made for for tourism but also a little bit wild there's like danger in like the cliffside and the the shrubbery where like the young daughter is lost yeah i think it was a really great setting how how do you feel about it it's been interesting because i've had one person tell me that they hated it 
really hated the location that it felt really claustrophobic and then i've had an obviously another person being like it's beautiful and it's haunting that there are some things that are wrong with such a beautiful location whether it's like a pine cone falling and hitting you really hard on the back or rotting fruit on a beautiful table in a beautiful apartment i see both of these things i do think that like vacations can be super claustrophobic and there is like an element of like stiflingness of like we're here now and we have to have a good time and if we don't then it's fucked (laughs) but it's also the fact that i think like this like nina's family really plays an important role in why it does feel claustrophobic because they're kind of everywhere they're everywhere and And they like almost own this like seaside resort area because they've been there for they come there like a year and year and they're you know they have some like really like dangerous elements suggested uh to yeah them. well they're meant to be as far as we understand it kind of like a mafia family right yeah that is coming especially here uh yeah especially in the book they're like i believe more explicitly um like they're from naples which elena yeah. Ferrante she writes about a lot is like this this source of like childhood trauma almost the violence mm-hmm. that made up naples yeah Leda and nina's relationship i think is the most light touch dynamic it it just like the effect that it has on you is so like blink it and you'll miss it's so expertly done um i think i was really surprised we all know that olivia coleman can act right Mm -hmm. but i was really surprised by dakota johnson and i'm really happy that she's in this film (laughs) she can act you know she can act she's a good actress she is but you wouldn't know like just based on the work that she she's done up until now like you wouldn't really know that so i'm just really happy that she's directed by another actor that kind of knows how to bring it out of her essentially but she looked she looked great and i just i love that all you have to do is like dye someone's hair black and give them a whole bunch of like eyeliner and they're instantly like a little bit trashy but it kind of still looks hot because it's dakota johnson and she's gorgeous (laughs) um what i love them so much about their relationship is like a lot of like initially they're just she's just watching nina and we're seeing later kind of watch nina in this weird like gaze like you know i think magazine hall does a lot of like close-ups which result in a lot of like it's very sensual even when what we're watching nina do is be affectionate with her daughter which is again motherhood is not necessarily the most sensual thing depicted on screen but you feel it you feel like that gaze upon her and then they talk there's a fantastic sequence where nina's daughter is lost and they're trying to find her and that entire sequence and how it ends is just like kind of how Leda and Nina uh, start to talk to one another. And it's just like love at first sight. I don't know how to explain it. It's just like they kind of like understand each other in a way where they're trying to just get a moment to talk to one another. Yeah. And I don't think they entirely understand it either. The characters, no. like why they yeah. keep gravitating towards each other, why it's almost like this this hush-hush you know, relationship they kind of have to yeah. keep hidden from the rest of Nina's family, who is yeah. a much more skeptical and suspicious, I think, of someone like Leda. Yeah, it's just instant intimacy, and you, you're not entirely sure why. And that's kind of how chemistry works, you know? We always talk about sexual chemistry, but like in terms of emotional chemistry, you really see it between these two women. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about Leda being, doing things that she doesn't understand. And this is the part where this film is so good because it does not try to explain its characters to the audience it just lets them do what they do and it's Mm -hmm. up to the audience to be frustrated or question or try and understand 
why like it just grips you from the beginning and like later is someone that <laughs> you know like we said before she doesn't maybe doesn't even know why she's doing what she's doing um and that's you know whether it's <laughs> have you ever been in an instance where you've been on a beach and someone's like could you please get up and you were like no fuck off that <laughs> confrontation that she has with them initially i don't know if i would ever do that and i think most people would just be like oh yeah sure yeah we can yeah i'll get up yeah sure but like later refuses and that kind of tells you all you need to know and over and over again in the film she does things that basically like spark confrontation yeah or escalates it at the very least oh absolutely and you know whether that's um you know she doesn't want to eat the cake that they offer initially and when she does it's super passive aggressive and she steals a doll like we mentioned and does not hide it when someone is over <laughs> and uh, and then when she's in a movie theater and there's a bunch of absolute fucking brat adolescent kids she screams at them and i must say i felt very seen in that moment let's talk a little bit more about the doll okay how stressed were you so stressed that's yeah. really like it's like a little phantom haunting almost every scene where she's just mm-hmm. like she refuses to do anything rational with the doll, which is, of yeah. course, the whole point. She's completely ir- irrational about this thing because of yeah. what it means to her as a mother. Yeah. I think it gave this film, the film, like a tint or a shade of a thriller yeah. category mm-hmm. or thriller genre, which Maggie Gyllenhaal has said that that's, that was intentional mm-hmm. because it kind of gives her a narrative structure to kind of hang on to so that she feels comfortable. And then the audience feels comfortable too because you want to know what happens with the doll and you want to know what happens next. Yeah, it's like um, Chekhov's, Chekhov's doll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really does deliver um both narratively and emotionally i just want to give a shout out to her for showcasing her husband peter sarsgaard is really fucking hot in this film because (laughs) good you know like as someone that has always played the weird creep that talks funny it was really nice to see him just be in his like bag with his hairy chest and like being really hot (laughs) as as the love interest so shout out to maggie for also showing the girls what the boy is about you know what i mean um but i highly recommend this film if there is a canon it's canon for me you know so Mm -hmm. yeah check it out so to continue on our olivia coleman celebration (laughs) what did you watch this week jenny i watched landscapers um this is an hbo miniseries streaming on hbo max it was created by Ed Sinclair, directed by Will Sharp. Uh, this is only four episodes. So it's a drama based on a true crime, which is the 1998 murders of two British pensioners, uh, the Witcherleys, at the hands of allegedly their daughter Susan and their son-in-law, Christopher Edwards, who bury the couple in the Witcherleys' back garden, and the crime remained undiscovered for more than a decade until, uh, in real life, like Christopher Edwards emailed the police and told them that they were turning themselves in mm-hmm. um, and to like check in the back garden. <laughs> and in 2014, this couple, they were sentenced to life in prison, in separate prisons, and to this day, they maintain their innocence. Uh, in this adaptation, I'd say more inspired by this true crime, Olivia Coleman plays Susan, David Thewlis plays Christopher, and their performances, I think, are really the strongest part of this story, which is, you know, as far as adaptations go, like, um, in the hand of Will Sharp, the director, like, 
both dreamy and suspenseful and and dark and mostly really really tragic but yeah coleman in particular i want to shout out like because we've been talking about her through this whole episode she is so good i think especially at uh showcasing these like flares of just being like totally peevish and unpleasant and Mm -hmm. uh, she has like tantrums but she's also quite pathetic or sympathetic in other ways. Mm-hmm. She's a great face actor. And there's obviously something very intimate about that. The way that she can, her eyes well up and then your chin, her chin wobbles. It takes you very far in the game of acting if you can sort <laughs> out how to do both of those two things. And she's like the queen of it. But yeah. I think we were talking before we started recording about it. And we both like were like, oh yeah, it's because she kind of looks a little bit childlike when she does it. And mm-hmm. her throwing a strop with the downturn mouth you know we see that a lot in the favorite for example where she's just an absolute brat right yeah but you really see in a child olivia whenever she's uh, upset or acting or like pissed off and like that shows a, a strong emotion of some kind which again it just kind of further makes the performance like lived in and true because i think when we all cry and when we all throw a strap when we're all angry we're just showing a little bit of our inner children um in some way and she's perfect at kind of nailing that so. yeah yeah. yeah, and you would definitely, uh, you see this in The Lost Daughter as well, like speaking mm-hmm. of um, her yeah. performance. So just like yeah. very good across the board. So Landscapers is not like a kind of straightforward true crime retelling, I would say. Hmm. Um, like what actually happened, the truth of that, those really it don't matter that much compared to mm-hmm. really like the main focus, which is this more complicated and I would say ambitious exploration of the ideas of like fantasy, delusion, mm. and reality. So what, yeah, what did you think, Pellin, when you were watching this and like the true crime element versus everything else that sort of comes as part of the package here? So when this crime happened, I was nine years old, so I don't remember any of it. Mm. But in terms of the stylistic elements, there is something incredibly British about this. Yeah. Like, mid- <laughs> middle England middle-aged couple their sensibilities the way that they are this show just like really zeroes in on the little like i would say how politeness works before actual reality and it does a really good job of like interpreting that i think it's a great uh, social anthropological example or study of what british culture is like so that's one (laughs) um but in terms of the stylistic elements and the way that it's kind of tried to interpret this i was having such a good time yeah Uh, watching this it is really fun more than anything when someone is in a scene and they're retelling something and the lights change yeah it's just so fun like it's really really a treat like you can see that the director and and the lighting crew and like the cinematographer was in their fucking bag with this which i don't know i just have to celebrate it we have so much true crime retelling or true crime uh forms of like tv and film now mm-hmm. um i think the point of it the reason why i would want to watch one is have you done something different mm-hmm. and i really do think that they've done something different with this which yeah. really kind of kept me throughout the episode totally like a lot of true crime whether it's you know documentaries or or straightforward retellings or podcasts or whatever like it the the focus is like the garishness um and the mm. grotesqueness and like the the shock value of what happens mm. well yeah. here that's definitely like a second stage to the themes the the characters like quote unquote characters in here the playful hands of the the director and the cinematographer like there are so many fantasy sequences or like mm. a different sort of stylistic choices like you said like 
and also kind of leaning more into this meta element that I think is what popped up as suggesting that the whole story is like a work of cinema itself. Like you have like the sets, the lights, camera, action, direction, like everything, but actually like integrated into the story here and the themes. Mm -hmm. And also like this element of it being like a theater production, like something on the stage, which also reminded me of like what Joe Wright tried to do with Anna Karenina. Um, But Mm -hmm. here again, it's like much more part of the story. Like it's intrinsically uh, linked to what they're talking about narratively. Um, which is like this whole idea of cinema and that is like a big fascination of Susan's like that is kind of her salvation like what she finds so much comfort in Mm -hmm. Um, she loves old black and white film she loves western she loves Gary Cooper she keeps buying these like expensive keepsakes from the sets of those films even though they have no money like this couple is pretty much destitute Um, they're hiding away in France her husband, Christopher, he can't speak French. He can't get a job. Um, they have no money that, that leads him to like finally in this, in landscapers at least, like begging his stepmother for help. And that's what sort of like alerts the police to the crime. And actually like sort of mirrors in real life. The, the detail that caught Will Sharp's attention about this case the most was that when, uh, Susan and Christopher turned themselves in, the only possessions that they had with them were these like film sort of keepsakes or relics or whatever. So really it plays into this whole idea of like, what kind of world are they absorbing themselves into? What fantasies are they like losing themselves in to escape reality in a sense? And the, the show is also like really sensitive to why people might cling to fantasies. So mm. slight spoiler, although I guess, you know, not if you know what happened in real life, but like Susan prefers her fantasies to reality in part, I guess like primarily because she reveals she was sexually abused by her own father as a child and her mother not only knew it was happening but she didn't stop it and she ended up sort of hating and resenting both her husband and her daughter for this and that's a really tragic uh root cause of course and christopher who you know when he starts dating susan when he marries her he not only is like an enabler of this fantasy but he also kind of joins her in that world while also trying to guard against anyone who would potentially disrupt this world and like puncture the fantasy which was really like i don't know it it was really touching but also very sad in a sense yeah because you have two people that are essentially a match made in heaven yeah in a very in in a way that leads to their demise yeah yeah um despite the comedy in this and there's a lot of comedy Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, in terms of the tonal dark comedy of it all, especially on the side of like the police officers. Oh yeah, that almost felt like a kind of a separate yeah production. It's at like times. The, yeah, it's like there's almost two series in one. Despite that, yeah, it is actually incredibly depressing. Not in a way that you are depressed yourself, but it, it's a, it communicates whatever it's trying to say, which is that like, how could this not happen for these two people? Um, yeah, with the kind of lives they had, with the kind of mm. people they are just all the circumstances that that led to you know the tragedy or the crime that happened and i'll say like at, at its core despite all the crime elements all the uh you know dark comedy moments like this is a love story yeah. and i i have to say i spent the first couple of episodes pretty suspicious of christopher um mm. without knowing like what happened in the real case of course I wasn't sure if he was going to betray Susan as mm. like uh, the series suggests because like Susan is worried about this um, because yeah. 
her faith in Christopher, her like unshaking faith is like temporarily shaken um, by Mm -hmm. outside forces, uh, particularly the police who really come across like in this is just like totally, you know, brutal and callous in a way like they're very uh, mercenary and efficient in manipulating the couple in sort of directing like quote-unquote directing because like in some of the scenes that they recreate they literally act as like sort of the directors of those scenes yeah yeah. and i mean really like there are moments where i was like okay christopher please what are you gonna do to susan but the yeah i I just want to i just want to say i think that was so clever because marriage in and of itself is predicated on a buy-in from both parties yeah you have to believe that this person is like the person that you know the most intimately the the one that you share everything with the one mm-hmm. that you have exposed yourself to the most but this person is also essentially until you met them a complete stranger right so it's such a fascinating way of exploring this very you know th- this truth that i think not enough people talk about um with regards to like romantic relationships is that you have to match the other person right. in whatever the commitment is. So the second there's an imbalance, that's when you, that's when problems arise. And th- 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 yeah, it just kind of showcased that perfectly because it, it's a tightrope that you have to walk. And yeah. they were just showing the shakiness of that tightrope, which yeah, once there's it, like it the slightest sort of breeze. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it turns out as this, you know, story plays out. They really love each other. They love each mm. other more than anything. They have an extremely codependent relationship. Mm. Um, Christopher is, as I mentioned, like this protector. And Susan is the quote unquote fragile, you know, treasure or joy that he he wants to save. Uh, almost as a savior complex. They're afraid of more than anything just being separated from each other. Yeah. It is quite tragic. Yeah. But also very moving, <laughs> I'll say. It's fascinating because, like, I, I don't know about you, but every time you watch a true story, you like go back in and see who the real people mm-hmm. are, and you know the fact that they're both in separate prisons yeah. and they're still there, and they're probably not going to get out until they die. <laughs> yeah, which is which is kind of sad because they're quite old. They, they, they were older when they went in. Yeah, so, yeah, um, older now too. Yeah, so it's just sad. That part is very, very tragic. The fact that their separation is continued. Yeah, and I just, I just wonder how they communicate now. You know, like it's, it's probably just like letters. Yeah, um, I guess if, a, it must if be, the film it, is any indication. Yeah, because what it comes down to is the fact that this person that you love so much, the one person that understands you, is now you're separate from them, and yeah. that what a punishment, you know? Yeah, and that's what I mean by like it's not so much like a true retelling as like it doesn't really matter if it's true or not because yeah. it's it's sort of reinventing itself as a an emotional story more than anything um in yeah. part fiction I mean, and part non-fiction as it should because whatever happened in the media cycle when it when it did come out was also uh, a way of telling a story it's all storytelling yeah the they're story all that was being told um during the, the the media cycle of it was like how could you kill your own parents which is like was focused more on susan mm-hmm. and the fact that it happened in, and this is, this is the fascination with a lot of like serial killer murders or murders that happen in suburbia. Mm, it's the same yeah. thing with like Middle England. Like they're so dowdy. Like how could they ever? They're so quiet. Mm-hmm. How could they ever? And then it turns into like they're so weird. And it's like, what's weird about this? Like people, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it, I, I really like what the series did um, yeah. in terms of questioning that. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And I'll just like say one, one last thing that I, I really liked was, 
how it also depicted like Susan's growth and her self actualization mm. or some form of that. Um, so we do have people like repeatedly calling her fragile throughout this, you know, story. Like Christopher meant in a very protective way, but in a way that also kind of almost robs her of her like agency. And then the police like using it as a form of manipulation or questioning. And, and in the trial, like the court, um, she also gets called fragile and everyone like sort of explodes in laughter and, really cruel in a sense i found a response to that and like the the fantasy sequence that happens afterward very very moving so she she Mm -hmm. says in the trial she's like i'm not fragile i'm broken and nothing can hurt me anymore and this is after you know they've discussed at length like how she was abused how her childhood went and then in like this fantasy black and white like western sequence uh, that's sort of been threaded throughout the whole show. Uh, she finally like takes the gun herself uh, in a chase scene, and she shoots the you know authorities who are chasing after her and Christopher in her you know like fantasy, and that represents um, you know coupled with her statement in court, like it represents something for her. Like she is not quote unquote fragile like she said it's just that the circumstances that led her to this state yeah it made me sad uh watching this but also i just really appreciate it as like a work of cinema if you want to consider it like a four hour long movie yeah <laughs> a little fact ed sinclair that's one of the co-creators of this mm-hmm. is actually olivia coleman's husband so. yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> we are really getting like a Another this theme in this meta. episode, yeah, and just yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the filmmakers <laughs> employing the filmmakers, their spouses, the husbands, the husbands, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a marriage great point. can be great sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like for all we're saying about this, uh, good for them for looking out yeah. for their loved ones. So for culture this week, we are going to talk about Kanye West and Julia Fox, who are i guess the latest addition to the celebrity couple question mark question mark um circuit if you don't know what's going on (laughs) kanye west and kim kardashian who were married are divorcing divorced not sure but kim kardashian has gone off with pete davidson and that's hilarious because he's ugly but has uh, he belongs he belongs to the streets also like he his dick game is clearly great he's been with a very many beautiful women celebrity uh rotation and he's landed on kim kardashian which i think has now driven kanye west insane (laughs) Uh, more insane than he already is bless his heart what's happening now is that i guess two weeks ago a week ago or something kanye west was in miami and then so was julia fox and if you don't know who julia fox is First of all, how dare you? Secondly, <laughs> she is the breakout star of Uncut Gems, and yeah. she was also in No Sudden Move as well. But mm-hmm. she is a New York girl, downtown New York girl, um, former dominatrix, just you know, just gorgeous, lovely. And um, so she was in Miami too when uh, when Kanye West was in Miami, and then they went on two dates that we know of so I think, far. Yeah, I think that was their first date, and then this was their most recent thing was presumably their like second date something like yeah. that yeah which launched understandably launched julia fox into the stratosphere of being more than just an indie film uh darling <laughs> and i guess kanye west new love interest and i think what made this 
even weirder was an interview magazine piece about their dates that was, I'm guessing, written by Julia Fox herself. Yeah, kind of talking or about like it. as told to to an editor or something. Um, yeah, yeah, about and, the date. Um, <laughs> yeah, and what was fascinating about this and also kind of a bit weird was that Kanye West kind of did what he has done to almost all of the women that he has dated in the past, and he did this to Kim Kardashian too, which is dress them style them and then do photo shoots with them in like random locations so i think the first date was uh in somewhere in miami so they went to the carbone there and then like up date number two was new york and he kitted out this hotel room with a bunch of balenciaga for julia fox only uh to wear clothes in and then they went to the carbone there and had a photo shoot i'm guessing yeah like and, i um, believe professional photographers and um yeah. i don't know like she says in this this interview mag piece she's like kanye directed an entire photo shoot for me while people dined the whole restaurant loved it and cheered us on while it was happening sure <laughs> Okay, so I've I've been to Carbone once, right? And it like we had like a gift card for it. Yeah, so I didn't definitely didn't pay for it myself. I personally think it's a little bit of an overrated restaurant, but it is a tiny space. It's like pretty small. Mm-hmm. And it's like a I find institution it, in a sense. Yeah, I'm very skeptical about everybody applauding and Right. I mean maybe they did, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean there was like I I saw a tweet or a TikTok or something. I cannot find it unfortunately, but like it was someone who was dining at Carbone, like when Julia Fox and Kanye were posing for photos in the middle of the restaurant. Um yeah. people did not look like they were loving it or well, cheering them on, which yeah, is cause... basically normal, you know, restaurant conduct to either look annoyed or to mind your business. Um Yeah, especially in a place like New York. Like especially when you're paying like thirty eight bucks for a plate of pasta, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway. I don't know. Um this is just like a very funny I don't know, the whole the the two paragraph lawn interview mag piece, the the professional photos, this pairing, like it's yeah. just all very funny and I don't know. It's just fascinating watching everybody's reactions from it. And I think it says a lot about the time that we're in. This is a method that I think in the early aughts would happen all the time, which is like an orchestrated celebrity pairing or, or an orchestrated um, couple pairing, whether it's to get back at your ex or whether it's to like launch your new whatever it might be. And, you know, it's it's a method. It's a tactic. It's a PR stunt. But to do it now, when everybody kind of knows the inner workings of, of how that goes, and also to do it post-divorce with one of the more like famous couples in the, in the world, it's just fascinating seeing everybody's reactions. Like there's some people that are like comparing Julia to Kim, which I think is super unfair. And like, why would you, why would you do that? Don't, don't do that. But it's just fascinating seeing everybody's reactions to Kanye because he's done this before to multiple women. And we now know what love bombing is. <laughs> so what is love bombing, Jenny, for those that don't know? <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something like you shower someone with, you know, gifts, affection, attention, you know, everything at probably at the beginning of a relationship, like the honeymoon phase, almost yeah. as a way to get them like, quote unquote, like addicted to like your your love, your love bombing. Yeah. And then yeah. later, you know, uh, I guess in some relationships it becomes like a, a weapon, like to, to pull away the, the love and attention as needed to form a like manipulation, um, yeah. et cetera. I mean, it's a real thing that happens, but this yeah. is like 
people really love to just diagnose random celebrity relationships uh, that yeah. they that they're seen from like photo shoots uh, with with this phenomenon. I don't know. People are going around everywhere calling this a. Uh, Kanye West love bombing Julia Fox when yeah I don't know I'm think, sure they're getting very much what they both want from this yeah and I think what's interesting just because I think it makes people feel this whole thing makes people feel a bit weird but they can't look away which is totally understandable Julia Fox uh had a massive like social media tirade against her baby father yeah who, I don't know his name but Peter like, Peter Art Artemi Artemi yeah Ar- Artemi Artemi or something yeah. like yeah so he is uh I think what we could understand is maybe an alcoholic somebody that drinks too much and like has just been a bum uh with regards to taking care of their sh- the shared custody of their son and she went over Instagram and was just kind of posting pictures of him. So it was like very, it was a very messy moment for her on the social media side of it. And I think she talks a lot about what it's like for single mothers and having to deal with abusive baby fathers and like people that just like don't know how to parent, co-parent. Good for her. I thought that was great. Like I know that like some people think that she shouldn't have done that, but fuck that. You know, fuck this guy. <laughs> just that's kind of how i feel about it but for her to then be like so now i'm gonna go and get with one of the most famous rappers in the world i just hope that she knows that this is a great tactic for her i'm sure she um, does yeah good for her for playing this chess move i do think that now she's gonna become like a household name i think she's gorgeous and she deserves it mm-hmm. and she should get more roles um, I just, w- I really just want her to like maintain distance. <laughs> um, and as for, and as for Kanye, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure. Uh, no comment. Like, no comment. I, I wish him any help that he needs uh, yes. in his journey. Um, yeah. He just, uh, but, but still yeah, like is, fascinating. It's very, it's yeah. very like, yeah. Like you said, like early aughts. Y2K, like celebrity culture, paparazzi, like it, in a sense, it's just very, yeah. very old school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's nostalgia inducing, but it's also like in terms of Kanye, like you keep doing this, like mm-hmm. buddy. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see where this goes. That's it for us for culture. Just a heads up that we are going to be out next week because Jenny has uh, surgery. Well, and that, well, sounds, that sounds more serious than That sounds more serious than it is. Basically, yeah. I have like a. Weird teeth, uh, including some extra. She's a vampire. Yeah, don't Google um, hybridontia because it'll surface a bunch of really freaky pics. But basically, yeah, I've got to get some uh, extra teeth removed surgically, and I'm gonna be out for a little bit. So, do you get to keep the teeth? I don't know. I guess so. If they offer it to me, I'll like keep it. hundred percent keep the teeth. I don't know, like how uh lucid or i will be at that point but sure like if they offer it i'll I'll, I'll keep it i just have i just have a few so they gotta there could be magic stored in those and you just don't know it yet and we don't know what to do with it so we should just keep the teeth i'll keep it then we'll like plant it in the soil someday and see what sprouts out from it yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. so we'll be back the week after that um but in the meantime you know catch up on some shows some movies uh let us know if you have anything that you're watching that you think we should watch um we really appreciate everyone's messages um from those of you who have been dropping us suggestions i promise we are paying attention uh to all we are watching and at least like trying to check out uh different things even if we don't ultimately talk about them here so feel free to email us criticism is dead at gmail.com or just uh, DM us or uh, add us at Criticism is Dead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. 
Uh, check out our Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com, for extended show notes, including links to various things we've talked about and more. Yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening. And uh, leave a little rate or review on your podcast platform of choice. Maybe yeah, just, just five stars. Just five stars. That's always our uh, qualifier. We only want the highest scores possible. Yep. Um, and then maybe tell a friend or two about us. Thank you all. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks, guys. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Helen Keskin Liu and Jenny Dijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.